Welcome to 40 Minutes of Funk, a podcast dedicated to introducing you to the finest funk artists, musicians, and experts from yesterday to today and from all over the globe. Each episode features at least 40 minutes of interviews and original recordings provided by our guests. I'm your host, Michael B., and I believe in the transformative power of the funk. It changed my life, and maybe it'll help change yours, too. This podcast exists to help promote funk music, funk practitioners, and funk philosophies. So thanks for joining me. Today's guest is the first of many from across the pond in upcoming episodes. As you'll hear, what started 20 years ago as a Meters cover band has blossomed into an original funk band tour de force. The band has recorded numerous full-length albums, singles, and EPs, including several with some extraordinary soul singers. They've also performed live as the backing band for some major soul and funk royalty, and their music has been picked up in movie trailers and TV shows, while also getting grabbed by DJs who've sampled their tunes for a new generation of funk fans. Please help me give a monster-sized 40 minutes of funk welcome to speedometer guitarist Lee Gracie. All right. Well, welcome to the show, Lee. It is a massive honor to have you here today. Uh, first of all, where are you dialing in from? So I'm dialing in from home, and that is um, in the east of England, uh, in a little village called Powgrave, which is in the middle of nowhere. Uh, and uh, so to give you an, your listeners uh, some sort of idea, if you were to draw a line sort of 100 miles north, sort of east of London, that's where I am. Wonderful. Well, you look and sound great. We've got a good connection. I'm really glad that you're with me today. Um, That's good. What is your role in Speedometer? So, uh, well, I, I suppose a couple of things. Firstly, was the sort of one of the founding members of the band. I, I suppose uh, have um, sort of over the years become the sort of band leader and um, and really the main songwriter. So, um, yeah, the, the, I, I suppose the guy who kind of conceived it right from the very beginning, that was me. Um, but it was kind of done with three or four other guys. So, but they tend to, that's why I'm doing the interview today. That's Wonderful. the sort of stuff I do. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's good. We're, I'm glad you're here. Um, I did see, I think, some drums behind you. Is that correct? In the room behind you? Uh, yeah, yeah. So got drums and percussion. Uh, and then over there is... Uh, is all the um the guitars um and uh, yeah this is sort of like the home studio study uh where all the magic happens well can you tell me a little bit about the current lineup of uh of speedometer yeah sure so um so it's re really interesting first yes before i talk about the lineup is just um it's actually the way that uh, often americans describe or the way they pronounce speedometer so you say speedometer uh, and every American I've ever met is always called a speedometer. So maybe I should change it because so much of our audience is American because uh, well, we say speedometer. So the well, emphasis I was actually, the I was going to actually joke and say, is it speedometer or speedometer or speedometer? I mean, you know, it could be anything. So speedometer. Yeah. yeah speedometer is well, that's no, um, that's not the correct way. That's just the English way. <laughs> uh, so, uh, um, but yeah, so in terms of the lineup today, uh, in terms of the live band, it's um, it's mainly an eight or nine piece 
uh, band. So we have, um, do, you, do you want me to take you through the names of the guys or just the lineup in terms of instruments? Yeah, absolutely. You know, just in case they listen to it, they'll, they'll know they weren't left out. Okay. So on, on drums, we have one of the core founder members, a guy called Chris Starmer. Uh, and on percussion, we have uh, Matt Wilding. Um, then and he plays congas and bongos and and timbales and pretty much every form of percussion you can think of. Um, and then staying on the back line, we've got Rich uh, Richie Hines, who again is one of the founding members on bass. Um, on the organ, we have a relative newcomer, uh, which is a guy called Matt Hodges. Um, so he's about our fourth or fifth organ player since the band first started. So he, he focuses mainly on organ, but obviously on Wurlitzer and electric piano and clav and all those traditional keyboards. Uh, obviously myself on guitar. Um, and and then in terms of frontline, we have uh, another relative newcomer, a guy called Dave Land on trumpet. And, and then the remaining horn player is uh, Simon Jarrett, who's our tenor sax player. He again is part of the original lineup. And then to finish that, we have potentially two uh, vocalists that will front the band. That's why it might be an eight or nine piece. There's Vanessa Jamie, um, vocalist, um, but more recently we've been working with James Jr. And he's on one of the tracks that we're going to listen to during the show today. Yeah. Can you recall a, a specific moment in your youth that made you decide, I want to be a musician? Maybe like a live performance or a specific album you heard that that really sets you on the path towards uh, picking up a guitar and then leading a band? Um, I don't know about leading a band, but certainly wanting to be involved in music started, um, I think it was, um, well, this will now be probably in the early 70s. And my parents used to have a, a record player where the speaker was built into the, so you had the deck at the top, that'd be about table height. And then that sat on a cabinet and in that cabinet was the speaker so it was a single mono and i remember my mum putting i think was a i think it was a rolling stones uh album on and i just remember putting my hand and i could feel the air movement from the speaker and i and i thought the rolling stones were inside this this cabinet so i was kind of a bit sort of freaked out to begin with and then i was kind of really curious more so than my younger brother and there used to be a, week, a weekly show um, every Thursday in the UK. It stopped years ago called Top of the Pops. And it was, the, it was our sort of regular um, show on TV. And I just became glued to this show at sort of five or six, just fascinated. And I think that was the point. I didn't know what I wanted to do, but I was just, you know, whether it was to sing or to perform or something like that. But I was, I was just mesmerized by seeing bands, musicians and instruments and the performance and I was just I was blown away so I think it was as early as that as early as I can remember really I was fascinated by it but it was only really 10 years later where I actually started to pick up an instrument and, and play so there was a big gap between wanting to do it and actually starting what was your first guitar or was that so, was that your first instrument no first first instrument actually was drums and uh, and I think that's that's kind of put me in good stead I think in terms of the music choices that I've made over the years because um, I think um, clearly with funk music, um, you need to be locked into a uh, into the groove, uh, and so I think that rhythmic foundation. So no, I, I kind of worked on a farm and saved up some money one summer, and went and bought a secondhand Pearl drum kit, um, and bashed away uh, listening to all sorts of music from sort of Motown and indie. I mean, just literally anything that I could get my hands on. Um, first guitar was uh, was an acoustic guitar. Actually, it was an Ibanez 
uh, acoustic guitar. Um, and that was really where I started to sort of discover, you know, music and harmony and, and, then, and then later went and had guitar lessons to try and understand um, how I could make things come together. How did spe- speedometer say? <laughs> I'm going to do that this whole time. Now, okay. now, now I and, feel and, like I'm off. <laughs> okay. And, and each time you do that, I'm just going to pretend I don't know what band you're talking about. <laughs> Deal. Uh, <laughs> let, let's talk some band history with Speedometer. How did how did you guys come together? Oh, so um, it goes back uh, about ooh, 22, 23 years ago. We were we were in a, an acid jazz uh, band um, called the Persuaders, based in the east of England. Um, and there was about again that was quite a big group, sort of eight, nine, maybe ten members at at times. So we were playing a kind of fusion of jazz and and funk and and soul, so similar to Speedometer, but um, but it was much more on the jazz tip and, and influenced a little bit more by the sort of blue note um, jazz uh, recordings of the mm-hmm. early seventies. Um, and that band split, and I was really um, keen to to do whatever it is that we were doing, but just do it a little bit more authentically. Um, that was the thing that was really driving me. So we stripped the band back to a four-piece and I, I stopped writing altogether and really wanted to go back to the core. I felt as though I'd sort of missed a few steps in my kind of musical journey. And, and when you start to crate dig and, and look through old records and find you know, particularly my discovery of the meters, you know, 25, 30 years ago, finding the meters for the first time, although they've been around for 20 years and listening to those old, uh, those old recordings, uh, that was this, I wanted to get that syncopation that they had and really we needed to declutter the band. So we went back to a four piece um, and we just did meters covers. And that was the formation of Speedometer because the name being Speedometer. So it was a it was a meters covers band was essentially how we started. But it was taking a much bigger group that was quite well known, certainly in the southeast of England and London. That came to a natural end. And then really it was going right back to the fundamental basics of funk was what it was interested in. Not to make records, not to tour, but just to make the music because I really enjoyed it. How did you reach the point that you definitely have a? I was going to bring up the meters because you definitely have a meters influence, and among others uh, in your band. Yeah. Um, yeah. When did you make the transition from meters cover band to you know we could do this, we could write our own stuff as well? What where, what was the change? What, what did that process look like for you? Um, I, I think it was probably probably within about a year of, of speedometer being, you know, up and running. I mean, you, you know, I, I was also sort of conscious that of a bit, a fundamental question is who am I making this music for? Is it for me and the other three members of the band? Um, we were thoroughly enjoying playing meters covers, but does, is, is an, is, is the audience also as accepting of the fact that we've, we've stuck to a very uh, straight thing. And um, and I thought you started to get sort of feedback from the audience saying, oh, it'd be great if you had a singer and great if you had... And didn't you used to have a horn section because they might have confused us with the previous band, all that kind of sort of stuff. So the process was probably after about a year of us... I mean, let's be honest, we'll never be as good as the meters. <laughs> so so, so it was, um, it was about getting to a point where I thought we were credible. So your comment there, of, do you know what, we can do this, was probably about a year in where I felt that we'd started to get kind of to a level which for me was kind of, you know, we'd reached that. 
then what happened was is that naturally I would be jamming and a new idea would come and say, actually, this would really work alongside Sissy Strutt and Funky Miracle and da, 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 da. So um, that was the point. It, it just kind of eased in. And then we thought, shit, we really need a saxophone for this. So, in, and you can see what happens. It's just, uh, and then what, so that was the, the kind of sort of main point. It was probably about a year in, but it was really after we'd felt that we were starting to get to a point where, in our own way, we'd reached a point of really, truly up feeling the music, not just being able to perform it, but really being able to feel it. One of the things that, that fascinates me about your style of music and about, especially with instrumental funk, is that yeah. it's so esoteric, but it, I mean, it's so good. I mean, I, I do a radio show that's all instrumental funk, you know? Right. And I'm always curious uh, about bands who pursue that direction yeah. because... You're not a rock and roll cover band. You're not a country band. You have this very specific sound. Yeah. What's it like gigging? I mean, I, I'm I'm thinking you guys did a, a full year of just covers of meters, and then you expanded into who you are right now. What has been your um, your approach to getting gigs, and what's what's the response like to the audiences? Um, I mean, you guys, you've been clearly you've been doing this as as this band for at least 15 years now, so it's going well. But what's that process like? The process of get, getting gigs. I mean, I, I think that um, in that first year, I would say that the majority of the promoters and, and probably the majority of the audience didn't realise they were li listening to a covers band anyway, because they were probably hearing this music for the first time. Good. Yeah. Um, uh, and because, uh, you know, and, and so what we didn't do was bar mitzvahs and weddings and, and that kind of thing, unless the, I, mean, I say that we did a couple, but that was because the bride, the bride and the groom happened to really know their funk. Yeah. And we'd actually, we'd actually say to them, that's a terrible idea looking at us because <laughs> gr granny and uncle and the kids are just going to hate it. What they want to hear is, you know, pop covers and, and, and all the rest of it. And most of the time we were right. Um, but um, I suppose that the process in terms of, of getting gigs, if, if you're not that, um, is, is a very slow, organic process of reputation. And what we found with the previous band was if you really stuck to what we did and if we got really good or certainly good enough at what we were doing, enough, almost like build it and they will come. Mm -hmm. and, and what happened was is that, I mean, you're saying 15 years, it was actually, it'll be now 20 years, 21 years, something like since the band was really gigging since that, that moment. And so it wasn't about social media then. Um, and it wasn't really, I mean, we weren't even making records at that point. It was word of mouth. And the funk scene is also quite, uh, it's quite well connected. And I think the really the big step, the, the main step in the process for us was um, I was doing some percussion. So I played Latin percussion um, and I was studying with a, a, a UK percussionist called Snowboy. Do you know Snowboy in the Latin section? They've played, they played with you, right? Recorded with you? Some? Snowboy has, yeah. He okay. was on a, yeah, on, on, on a, on a, on a, one of our biggest tunes, actually, a chap called Arisha. Well, well, um, Snowboy in his own right is a, a phenomenal musician, arranger, producer, um, and DJ, big, big, certainly big in uh, continental Europe as a, as a funk and soul DJ. And he had got uh, uh, basically just one of the percussion sessions. I, I gave him a cassette. So this shows how long it goes and just said, what do you think of this? I just really wanted his input. And he said, look, guys, you sound really, really authentic. Gave it to a promoter who ran a whole series of clubs in London. But the main one was the Jazz Cafe. And the Jazz Cafe was really the home turf for the sort of funk scene in London. 
And and it was really that promoter, as soon as he heard that cassette, was on the phone and said, look, I'd really like you to come and play at the Jazz Cafe. And that really set us on a path uh, of kind of discovery because then we'd gone from looking very inward, trying to make great music for ourselves and our local audience. And now we were now in the middle of what we didn't realise until much later was a bit of a funk revolution because this was before that tone. This is, um, you know, this is before really that, that, that scene had truly sort of developed. I'm actually going to get back to that very specific thing here later on, but um, I do want to sort of go down a side alley here real quick. And so I tend to think of funk as, uh, as being a, an American centric thing. I know it's not now. I know it's a worldwide, it's a global thing. But yep. you typically think of of American funk as having these sort of pockets, um, uh, and you know you've got your Ohio and and your Philly and you yep. know stuff like that. So, what is the funk scene like in London? Well, I suppose if I can answer that in two ways, if I talk about what it was like twenty years ago, um, yeah. firstly, because uh, it was incredibly vibrant and it was it was um, certainly the scene that we were. I mean, there's definitely pockets. So there would be that kind of Philly soul, um, you know, that later sound. The sound that really took took off in a big way was what we refer to in the UK as deep funk. Uh, and deep funk, I guess, was probably, if I was to position it in America, would probably be the South, and particularly New Orleans, Florida. Mm-hmm. Um, and there are a lot of compilations coming out of sort of um, discoveries of original recordings of Florida groups and um, and Texas, uh, another big uh, area with, I think, uh, Mickey and the Soul Generation, I think, from from that uh, sort of area. Yeah. Uh, and um, so, so it was very much that stripped back, raw, made on a budget, but then in mixed with that was sort of James Brown, you know, and I would say sort of late 60s to mid 70s, James Brown, JB's James Brown uh, sort of era. And so it was incredibly vibrant, lots of new bands appearing, loads of club nights, um, and and it wasn't just a London thing because at the same time the bamboos were emerging from Australia. Uh, we had um, uh, obviously the, the what was the sole providers then became um, the Dat Kings uh, a little bit later. So they were coming over to this same club, and there was this connection of DJs and promoters, uh, etc., that were all kind of interacting, sharing new discoveries. And it was, it was amazing because there were just compilation album after a compilation album coming out. And then there was guys like us making a new version of this, this music heavily influenced by it was great. And it was, we stumbled upon it. Uh, We never, you know, as I said earlier, we started out to make music basically to try and not to master it, but to get close to understand it, to appreciate it because we loved it so much. We had no idea there were thousands of other people also on a voyage of discovery, finding this, uh, this, this, this great music. So it was really very much that raw d- deep funk was the driver and it became a very vibrant scene amongst DJs and, and bands alike. Is there a still, still a good vibrant funk scene in England? Well, uh, yeah, sorry. So yes, I didn't answer the second part no, of that's that. Okay. I, I set it up and then I forgot to say it. So uh, now I, I think it's, um, I, it's kind of matured. So what is very positive is, is that there are lots and lots of new groups that um, have kind of picked up the mantle uh, and, and are running with it and are doing their take on it so that there's, you know, it's, it's perhaps become a little bit more digital. Maybe it's because of uh, the fact that it's so much easier to get your music out there through obviously the digital channels 
maybe there was always a lots of this music, but we just didn't know about it. It was all being done on four tracks and on cassettes and CDs. Mm-hmm. And now 20 years later, everyone's just constantly hosting stuff on Spotify and other channels. Yeah. But it, it seems that there's a lot of good crossover mixes, but that original scene of, uh, uh, as I was involved in it, has kind of diminished somewhat. It seems to be stronger in other European countries and less so in, in the UK. But there are still a handful of clubs that are still, you know, very, very active. But it's, it's definitely a sort of a quiet, it's gone a little bit back underground again. How does that affect your gigging schedule? Do you find yourself traveling outside of England more? Yeah, yeah, that that that's pretty much it. I mean, we've got. I mean, obviously, the last two years have been difficult for different reasons for everybody with the uh, with the pandemic. So nobody's been gigging particularly. Um, but we certainly found over the last five or six years that the that the that the bookings for the UK have become smaller. I mean, certainly paradoxically, we've seen more festivals. Um, so and you know, and, and there's so many more festivals, but so they tend to be in the summer. And what we found now is that, I mean, every year we might go to Spain at least once, maybe twice for a series of shows. France is still a very popular destination uh, for us. So, yeah, unfortunately, it does mean we've got to pack a bag and jump on a plane um, to to go and do some gigs, which is kind of different when you think where we started, because normally I'd travel like 10, 15 minutes. Mm -hmm. Now now I might travel 10, 15 hours to get to a gig, you know? Yeah. Um, How would you describe Speedometer? Um, well, the, mu- the music it, of it. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I mean, originally it was a Meters covers band. I think it, it's how I describe it has changed. Um, it was an instrumental funk band, as we've mentioned earlier in the past. Um, but now I, I would say that we're still. I would, in a sentence, I would say we're a funk band. But what we try and do uh, every time is to bring in additional musical styles to complement and sit with the funk. Um, so it's a sort of funk plus, really. It's sort of funk plus soul, funk plus Latin or Afrobeat, um, because those are where the uh, and Latin, of course, and that, those are all where the influences are. I like that funk plus. Um, let's jump into your first song. Uh, I, I want to start with Tomahawk. And part of this is for personal reasons, because, uh, as I mentioned, I host a weekly instrumental funk radio show in Oklahoma. It's called Tonic the Funky Groove Show. And when I launched my very first episode in 2020, I included your track, Tomahawk. Really? Um, Oh, yeah. It was my very first episode. Um, It's the sort of song that, like we've been talking about, a lot of your music, it sort of takes you back in time. Um, And I believe that this track was on your 2017 album, Downtown Funk 74. That's correct. And so can you tell me real quick a little bit about how this song came together and what listeners should, should be prepared for? Sure. Well, I with this is actually I wanted it to have a, a slightly British sound um, because this album, Downtown Funk, was a collection of instrumental funk for um, the legendary uh, KPM mm-hmm. uh, music library label. Yeah. Um, so they'd given me a little bit of a brief. So this was a different album to others. And so what I wanted to do here was sort of reference um, some of the classic British funk sound so i mean obviously the um you know the champ being an obvious one um with the mohawks if you know that tune so and and that era so there's an element of that big brassy uh funky sound but what we also did it was a a pace that you would naturally associate with a deep funk track so that was basically the sort of concept behind this big bold in your face not trying to be particularly clever just loud something that would work so that the moment is played uh in a club 
you've got there's there's no waiting around there's like a few beats of drums and then it's wallop and and it was basically designed to be a bit of an impact track well i think you accomplished that it is a huge impact track let's give it a listen here's tomahawk by speedometer with lee gracie from british funk band speedometer lee what do you think sets uh speedometer apart from other funk outfits oh that's a that's a really good question i mean i, I think that, i suppose what separates us i mean we have a common ground clearly in in terms of our influences number one so let's 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 accept that we all listen probably to the same artists and the same influences i think for, for me what i um, although being in a funk group and and it's important about rhythm and and the funky groove being really, really important. The thing that 
I've always tried to focus on, and I'm not saying the other bands don't, but I generally don't always hear that in their in their in their in their songs. Is I've tended to focus a lot more time on the harmony, and I've been very much interested in the song side of it. So um, what I mean by that is is that other bands are probably better at just sitting on a groove. Um, and I think for us, sometimes what I felt is, and maybe it's to do with my own sort of impatience, but I want I want the song to move on. I want it to change. I want something to sort of happen. Um, and I guess that. I don't know if it's to say it's, if, whether it's truly different to the other groups or it's just the fact that I've tended to perhaps draw from other influences and other musical styles to influence my, my writing and the way that songs are sort of structured. But I think it's, in a sentence, it's going to be, I think, variety, trying to make uh, an album of, that isn't just simply all ballsy funk, um, that there's a mixture in there, whereas other bands might just sort of home in on that whole funk thing and do it brilliantly. For us, I wanted a bit of variety uh, in there, both in, in individual songs, so maybe mixing it up and changing the rhythm and style, but also having an Afrobeat track next to a funk track, next to a soul ballad. Um, and I think that's probably been the main the main distinction, is that yeah. variety. Yeah, your, uh, your new album, which I'll talk about here in a little bit, definitely is a great illustration of that, of, yeah. of stacking up different things that are all funk plus, like you said, right? Yeah. Yeah. I'd like to talk a little bit about funk, what I call funk with a capital F. What philosophies related to funk um, as a lifestyle or perspective uh, inspire you or influence you, either you musically or just personally? Um, well, I think the first thing about sort of funk music is, and, and even if you go back and look at, um, you know, really early footage of, of, of musicians, uh, that for me, it's a, it's one of the, uh, I suppose, alongside with jazz, it's um, completely expressive. Um, so no matter what's going on in people's lives, and I love watching some of that sort of early 70s sort of footage of some of the TV shows in the States, uh, you know, where people are dancing in front of the camera and you've got a funk band, I think like Soul Train uh, and programs like that. And it's just the carefree element of it. Whereas some music, um, you know, people are, it's quite intense and, you know, you know, you know, rock music and everything else, it engenders a certain emotion. The thing with sort of funk for me, and I hope I'm sort of answering the sort of question the way that, that you intended, but it's a kind of freedom. Um, there's a kind of, even though the music is quite structured, it's got a kind of lightheartedness as well to it. And it's a sort of, it's that freedom, escapism. And the other thing I think is, is that um, it's one of those great examples of cultures coming together and collaborating. Yeah. Um, and, you know, if we think about, you know, the sort of some of the themes and the social commentary that have been, you know, that we've, that, that we've kind of witnessed over uh, and, and particularly how divisive society has been. I mean, I know you see it all the time on the news, what's happening in America, mm-hmm. um, particularly last year. I guess we don't need to talk about Donald Trump specifically, but um, but the whole. I'd rather not. Thank you. No, but, but we <laughs> sure. And but we have our own, uh, as, as you probably know, we've uh, you know we took a rather interesting decision as a country to to leave uh, the EU, mm-hmm. and you know that has really whatever your side of the fence you sit has created real division, uh, split families and cultures, and and uh, and it's not been a healthy thing, irrespective of whether you think it was a good decision or not. And I think that society doesn't need much to uh, to sort of to trigger those types of uh, you know tension. 
And, you know, we, we look to other things. And, and for me, kind of funky music is just one of those things. It's one of those outlets. And for me, that's, you know, long may it sort of continue. Do you know what I mean by all that? Yeah, yeah, yeah I absolutely do. Um, well, and I think that leads to the next question is, why do you think funk music is still important today? Why has it lasted, you know, 50 years, almost 50 years of funk music? Why is it still an important genre and still going strong? Yeah, I, I must admit, I'm I'm kind of surprised it has, because. Uh, uh, but then again, I'm um, I suppose when I think about it, funk actually is a sort of a template in the same way that maybe reggae uh, or, or soul music. Uh, mm-hmm. And in fact, there isn't. We 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 discussed it earlier. You know, there, there's a quite a big variety of what do we mean by sort of funk. Uh, so to a lot of people, they might think of kind of p funk as being the definitive funk style because it's got the word funk in the name. But people naturally may not think of the early James Brown or the Meters or some of the sort of deep funk stuff that we're talking or Philly. They might not describe that as kind of a funk, but it is. Yeah. Um, and I think maybe the reason uh, that, that it's lasted as long is it has the capacity to evolve and adapt. Um, and so there's very much an electric funk, digital funk, modern funk interpretation that exists yeah. today that didn't exist in the 70s, the 80s and 90s. So, so perhaps... It's the fact that it keeps reinventing itself and people find new ways of using the basic principles of this rhythm. I mean, I was listening to just some tracks this morning. I was out in, in the car and my playlist just came on and there were some old sort of funk tunes. Um, and I was just thinking to myself, how did somebody actually come up with this rhythm? Where was their frame of reference? Yeah. It just did, you know, where did they, how did they decide that that kind of offbeat, cold sweat drum beat was going to uh-huh. work? It, it was just, I guess, a happy a- accident that kind of happened in a session one day and somebody said, that's amazing, let's try, you know, and that organic sort of process sort of started there. But you could probably trace it back to some jazz record or some other influence that goes back. So maybe it's just that it's a constant thing and it will still be here in 20, 30 years' time, but in a different form. Yeah. But I think what also is useful is the fact that people are con- now can delve back very easily and find all these early references and draw stuff out of them. And it helps people to, um, uh, you know, to then go and rediscover these roots for themselves. Well, so with Speedometer is now, as, as you said, over 20 years old now. And so I feel like you're a big part of the new generation of funk artists. Where do you and your band members see Speedometer on the funk family tree? Well, we, we see ourselves probably somewhere in the middle of the tree now because um, we weren't, um, you know, clearly we weren't the pioneers that those were some of the guys that we've, you know, we've mentioned in the sort of uh, that, you know, who really kind of developed the sound in the seventies. So I think we, we came, I feel like we're almost like the sort of intermediate middle level. And then there's another couple of layers that have now grown from, from what we were doing. Um, and I think everyone's feeding from those original sources. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's, I, I'd say it's probably kind of, it's interesting that you describe this as kind of new. We're kind of new relative to our influences but I've also met bands that have said, you know, we do cover versions of speedometer tunes in our set. We, we were out uh, having dinner, the, the band members, um, about three weeks ago, and we hadn't seen each other for a year because of coronavirus. Mm-hmm. We were talking about how long the band had been going and some of the bands that have started recently. And, and, uh, uh, and you, you sort of think, oh, that sounds very familiar. That sounds like the sort of thing we would have done. And somebody said, well, if you think about it, the, the time difference between our first album when they've come out was the same time difference between when we started and when the Meters made their first album. Oh, wow. And we thought, shit, we're some really old. <laughs> uh, 
first first thing. But secondly, it is that actually um, a whole new generation has come around, literally another generation, yeah. um, you, you know, that, that has kind of now appeared making music that wasn't even around, you know, we're just babies when we started. Something that fascinates me about this progression of funk, you know, funk really... If I've got my history correct, funk really had sort of its heyday in the 70s, you know, coming out of the late 60s, early 70s. And then, of course, it spread out into, you know, disco and um, turned into basically to rap and hip hop where you've got DJs who were pulling these, like you said, pulling these records out of the crates and stuff. It seems to me like there's this gulf in the funk that appears sort of to the you know early to mid 90s things i feel like sort of start rolling off of course you still got like the red hot chili peppers and they're sort of an you know for them rock funk yeah yeah exactly right but then something happens in the early 2000s i mean this is we're again we're talking about the the genesis of speedometer what happened in that gulf what do you, do you have any idea where funk went and why it came back after that sort of what I feel was like a five to 10 year sort of a gap where there wasn't as much being produced or was it being produced, but it just sounded differently and it didn't have it didn't have the hallmarks of the traditional funk sound. Do you have any well, ideas? There's not a right or wrong question. I'm just no. myself. Yeah, I, I, it's a really interesting thing. I mean, I think it might differ depending on where you were in the world. Um, I mean, I, it was interesting. You're, you're spot on in terms of your timing. I think that what was interesting was through the mid-90s in the UK, um, the acid, what I call the acid jazz, there was a particular label, the acid jazz scene, so mm-hmm. Jamiroquai, yep. uh, brand, brand New Heavies, those guys. Yeah, um, You know, James Taylor Quartet is a r- rather good example oh, through, yeah. the, through the 90s. So this is while, and, and so I think the focus on kind of funky music was kind of a bit more jazzy, and was referencing mid-70s. And I, I don't know what it is, but I, I think what happened, it, it may be just that people just caught on eventually because there's, there's almost like, you need almost like a natural cycle, you know? So we, we naturally don't like the stuff that we heard five years ago or 10 years ago. It sounds really dated. And then if we allow it to mature for another 10 years, it then starts to become retro and cool and vintage. And it and now picks up a new adjective. Um, and, and I think that maybe through the 90s, we were starting, it was really the birth of electronic music, really, wasn't it? And I think what happened was, is that we needed to burn out on that, on the society needed to burn out on that a little bit and start to go back to things that were a little bit more organic or people that were interested. So you ended up with people who then went more into house and electronic dance music, and drum and bass and everything else. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I think that maybe it, it just needed that time. Uh, and then for DJs to be curious and starting to add these 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 great tracks um, that were undiscovered, and and it was certainly by the late nineties that was certainly happening in London. So by the time I think it was ninety nine, yeah, around about ninety nine two thousand, where we kind of started, it was already starting to gain momentum. But prior to that, we'd had this acid jazz scene, which was referencing some funk. Absolutely. in these compilation albums. So it was going on in London. It never really, it, it, the, the lull was probably a little bit early. It was probably from the 80s. But then, of course, we had a Brit funk scene here. And that's another important chapter in the UK scene was um, there was definitely this emergence of this Brit funk style, mm-hmm. which was a more soulful um, sort of mid-Atlantic you know, Atlantic sort of sound. That's really interesting, though. I, lo- I love that idea that... <laughs> 
ironically, so that funk needed some time to to settle and not be as funky and sort of be rediscovered. Do you th- and I always wonder if part of that too was record labels going back and doing compilations yeah. during that time and pulling those old tracks out going, okay, we never released this. You've never heard this before. This thing's yeah. 20 years old. And maybe that was also part of that was sort of a rediscovery of old funk that had been lost. Yeah. And, and, uh, and I remember that's how I discovered, uh, you know, through the 90s was compilations. And it was interesting that you said um, record labels. So, I mean, I guess one that springs to mind was Ace Records. Mm-hmm. Um, and they were particularly strong in terms of reissues. And Acid Jazz, which was obviously a British label, um, they were doing a lot of that kind of thing as well. Yeah. Um, and taking some of those early sort of recordings. And, and there was a couple of companies in France, I've forgotten the name of the other label, but in fact, one of the guys that was big on this compilation, rediscovering these songs and getting them released and funding it himself was one of the founder members of the band that became the Dat Kings. Mm. And that that was sort of, the, and, and certainly for me and for many others, you started to see alongside the Jamiroquais and the brand new heavies, you saw these compilation albums in, in, in the record stores. And, and of course, that was the point at which people like me were discovering this music and going, who the hell are the meters and who are the hell are these guys, you know? Yeah. yeah. Well, let's listen to another one of your tracks that you sent over. So this uh, one you referenced earlier, this this one does feature lyrics, which was a, a bit of a departure from your earlier instrumental stuff. But in 2015, you recorded a funky, soulful record with singer James Jr. called No Turning Back. Um, before we get into the song, can you tell us a little bit about how that project uh, came together? Well, we'd, we'd started uh, the writing for that album. Maybe it was quite a long gestation period because, again, this was a point where I wanted to work with a different singer and perhaps somebody that was from a different field. So James is much from a, a more from a kind of modern R&B sort of jazz uh, background and and gospel as well. That's his, his, his sort of background. So the whole album really features him as the main vocalist. We'd never done anything quite like that. Uh, before we'd always had sort of mixture of instrumentals. I think there's a couple of instrumentals on that album from memory, but it's mainly a vocal album. And he is a, a quite a gifted musician in himself and, uh, and a pianist. And he was able to sort of bring an, a completely fresh dimension. The song itself, um, so the music was kind of written, uh, the lyrics, I remember um, this was really at the start of when we, uh, the UK and Europe started to see the influx of refugees from uh, North Africa uh, and further afield. And what was interesting was just how the British public were kind of dealing with that um, and almost sensing that they were just coming over for fun and that they had a choice and they were just happening to be choosing Britain when clearly they didn't. Uh, And so whilst most of our lyrics are about love and and more kind of day-to-day type sort of topics, I felt with this this was an opportunity with a sort of a jazzy type sort of tune is to maybe talk about something um, a little bit more controversial, which is actually um, about our own attitudes towards um, helping people who are in, uh, in a very, very situation. And also that's where the title comes from. They didn't have a choice. They can't go back. Hence no turning back. Let's give this a listen. This is the title track from no turning back by speedometer featuring James jr.
My special guest, Lee Gracie from Speedometer, and uh, we just heard a collaboration with James Jr., but you guys have performed with other singers and musicians. You've alluded to some of them already. Um, you also recorded an album with Martha High, who famously toured and recorded with the godfather of soul, James Brown, for 30 years. Can you yeah. talk a little bit about the experience of working with her and how that came together? 
Well, it, it started actually um, a, a little bit further back because not only did we have the privilege of working with Martha, but we also worked with a couple of other members of the James Brown Band. And, and the, one that, the first one that we got the opportunity to do was with Marva Whitney. Uh, so um, we were lucky enough to do her first show, um, having not sung those songs um, for sort of 20, 30 years. Um, so she came out of retirement, came to London and we did two shows. Wow. And then that really set us on a path where we backed a number of artists. So Sharon Jones, mm-hmm. uh, we sort of backed her on a couple of occasions, Lee wow. Fields. Um, so this was really before their band, their own bands and them as brands had really sort of developed. So, yeah, um, and, and and numerous other, you know, great classic sort of funk artists um, uh, over the years. And Martha, um, I'm trying to think it was, I think it was a James Brown tribute show that the Jazz Cafe was putting on. And it had, as I say, a number of the members of the James Brown band. And it was just like an all-star band. And I was one of the guitarists. Um, we got talking to Martha after the show. And she's just such a lovely, down-to-earth human being. She's lovely. And we just got sort of chatting and talking about her life with James Brown. And, of course, most of us are fascinated by that. And, um, and some of the records that she'd recorded. And I said, you know, why didn't he do an album? Because obviously Lynn Collins did an album and, and Marvel Whitney did an album. And it was just, you know, why, why, not, um, why not you? And I think it was just a question of sort of timing. And, and she was obviously the youngest of that group of, uh, of vocalists. And I said, well, why don't, would you ever be interested in making one? Thinking that she'd say, look, you know, that's a crazy idea. And, you know, I live in America and you live in, you know, in the UK, et cetera. And she said, no, it sounds great. And I'm in Europe all the time. And so we said, okay, well, we'll start to choose. So we had about three of my songs and then uh, we chose a range of covers that we thought would be an interesting contrast to the pure funk that she was used to. So there's Etta James and, uh, and, and other tunes that we we picked out as an Aretha one. And, and it was fantastic. And she was such a delight to work with. And then we went on and did some, some dates with her across Europe and yeah. really, really nice time. Really enjoyed doing that project. That's cool. Did she tell you any funny or interesting James Brown stories you can share here? Um, I think the, um, I mean, <laughs> the, there's some that probably wouldn't be right to share, uh, <laughs> but the, um, but I mean, most, most, most of the time it was with real kind of respect and affection genuinely for, for James, but it was, it was sort of tough. I think also uh, at the same time, because, you know, I guess being the genius that he was, that genius comes with some pretty irrational uh, behavior at times. Uh, what she'd often refer to was just how that she would always refer to him as Mr. Brown. Mm. And there was this kind of immense sort of respect and quite a lot of fear uh, in, in sort of putting a foot wrong. And, and obviously stories about, you know, when she's been sort of late for a show or something like that and how she was, I mean, he really didn't sort of put up with that yeah. from most of the artists. But what was interesting for her and I mean, she went on to write a book about it was is that he treated her a bit like a sort of a baby sister. And so she could sort of see all these sort of difficulties and some of the financial challenges that went on with the group, et cetera. But what she but she felt was is that she was kind of somehow protected by all that. And I think that was one of the things that really left me when whenever she spoke about James Brown was James kind of treated her like just almost protected her because she would have been like 15, 16 or something when she joined the band and touring the world. And so, yeah, so it was mainly very complimentary. Yeah. 
Well, speaking of stories, you guys have been together for 20 years. You've got a lot of touring and recording time in your pocket. What's one of your favorite speedometer moments? Uh, well, I, genuinely, I think working with, with Martha High. I, I think, the, the, I suppose, the, m- many shows and many gigs that have been uh, particularly um, sort of special. But um, I think probably one of the funniest moments, and we were, we were talking about this uh, quite recently, um, are you familiar with Eddie Bow? Yeah. Um, yeah. So uh, New Orleans, right? Yeah, absolutely. So Eddie was booked for two shows uh, in London to come and play all his funk stuff. Um, so we learned the back catalogue and had agreed with his manager that we would do these, these two nights uh, with him in London. So it's a big deal because, I mean, I yeah. loved Eddie Bow, still do, uh, you know, his, his work of that, of that era. But of course, he spent most of his life playing blues uh, and, and not funk. Mm-hmm. So when he turned up, that's pretty much what he wanted to do. <laughs> but of course, the whole audience and his band were ready. <laughs> and so he turns up about five hours before the show. We have this big rush to get the show done. And then we go on stage and literally as he went, he, he walked past me as we as he introduced him and he said, um, just keep an eye in. I'm not going to attempt to do his accent, but he said, uh, Lee, you've done a great job in preparing the band. I'll take it from here. So I thought, what does that mean? So then what happens? We've got a set list. All of that went out the window. <laughs> and what he did, so, so then what he did is he sat down on the piano. How are you doing, everybody? Got the crowd going crazy. And he just starts playing like Boogie Woogie on the piano. And so the, our bass player, who's nearest to him, is leaning over and then shouts to me, it's in the key of B. So we just started jamming along with him. And that was the entire gig. Wow. And, and he would go off, like, to have a break. And so I would say, right, let's, as he's coming down the stairs, back onto the stage, let's start playing one of the original funk tunes. And then he'll have to do it because we've already started. <laughs> so, and so we did it. He was playing, to uh, be fair, he did um, Hook and Sling, obviously the, yeah. big, the big tune. But we think he was doing Kick the Bucket and was playing the vamp to Kick the Bucket. And he said to me, as he came in, he said, Lee, this sounds just like we did it in the studio 30 years ago. And I was like beaming from ear to ear. So I thought, what? This is fabulous. You know, what, what, a, what a vote. Of- a compliment. Absolutely. And then he said, but I don't do that stuff no more. So, so then sat down and waited for us to finish. So we just had to sort of peter out. And then we went back to playing blues again. And then, uh, and then just to top it all, the most bizarre of gigs, our lead singer, uh, he liked her so much that he invited her to come and study with him in New Orleans. So she left the band and went to New Orleans. <laughs> so we had the most strangest gig and we lost our singer all oh in God. two nights. Oh, my gosh. But, but hilarious. And there are people that still message us, say they were at that gig, and they remember it for just the, the agony on our faces, you know, oh, trying so they, to keep... They could tell. Oh, they knew. They, they totally knew. <laughs> yeah, they, they totally knew. What, what, how did you apologize to those guys like, I had no idea this was going to happen. I mean, did they just kind of take it in stride? Like, well, that's the way it is sometimes. Yeah, I, I, I think that, that that is. I mean, I think the audience actually, because he was such a great showman, probably half the audience, I mean, the fun aficionados, the people who knew the sort of stuff, were um, were probably a bit sort of disappointed. But they could see that it wasn't us that was leading the gig in a completely sort of different direction. But we held our own and, you know, we were able to sort of, you know, hold it together and, and, and to play along with him. Uh, and, and actually it probably was an okay gig, you know, um, and you've just got one of the legends of kind of New Orleans 
um, you know, there in person. That was probably enough for the audience. I'm sure there was a good number of them who didn't even know. Yeah. Oh, okay. We just came to hear music and that's what we got. Yeah, exactly. And a good time was had, you know, Yeah. Um, but it was bloody painful. (laughs) That's funny though. Thank you for sharing that. Um, I want to play your final show for the episode. Uh, You sent me Mo Crunch which I feel has some heavy uh, Booker T and the MGs vibes to it. And I want to talk about the album that that comes from after the song. But um, for now, can you tell me about this song specifically and what our listeners going to hear? What do they need to listen for? Yeah, so this one, uh, I mean, with a lot of the other tunes that, that you've heard, we would record it in layers. So the, the, the core band would go in and perform and then the horn section or the vocalist would come in and do it as you, as you would expect. This one was done entirely live. And in fact, although it's off the latest album, it's a good example of where we started, which is four guys looking at each other in a room with four microphones, playing through the tune a couple of times to try and get the groove right and get the arrangement. And I'm nodding as we're going along so they know when to change. And so this is really us going back to our kind of raw uh, basics. It's a mixture of kind of, as you said, Booker T. So it's got that kind of slight stacks vibe, but it's also... Mm -hmm. Uh, a little bit of a nod back to the British funk of uh, of the early seventies, the Alan Hawkshaws, Keith Mansfield uh, sort of style. Uh, KPM uh, kind of, royalty, yeah, indeed. Yeah, that 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 kind of uh, sort of style. And it was a huge laugh doing this one because um, you know we're using really old equipment. Everything's going direct to tape. There was it, this is a no frills recording, and and so as compared to perhaps a slightly more polished. A production that you've heard on the last two songs yeah uh, this one is and and as the name suggests we recorded it in a studio called mo crunch uh, sorry crunch studio so we hence the song was called the song was called mo crunch and it actually features the drummer couldn't make the session so it's the studio engineer a guy called jason bulldock who's a very good drummer and he ends up doing the drums on this take um, and this became the the recorded version all right well let's hear it this is mo crunch by speedometer Thank you. 
Today's guest is Lee from Speedometer. We just heard Mo Crunch from their 2020 album, Our Kind of Movement. And this whole album is dynamite, Lee. Uh, it has some great, as we talked earlier, it's got some great Afrobeat vibes. You've got guest yeah. singers. You've got some Latin influences. And you have James Jr. coming back for uh, some more tracks as well. Uh, yeah. Tell us about this album specifically and how it came about. Well, in many senses, it's uh, unlike pretty much every other project I've done. It almost started with the title and the title being that there are a number of influences to our sound and um, not always represented uh, in our sort of previous album. So the Downtown Funk album, you know, had much more of a kind of straight ahead uh, funk feel to it for the majority of the tracks. With this album, I, I wanted it to be, you know, a full spectrum of what we what we were influenced by, the things that moved us. So really, that's where the title came from. It's our kind of vibe, our kind of movement. And so the the idea was actually to take ideas that I was doing on various different projects um, and to try and bring them in. So um, there's a couple of vocal tunes on this album which are, uh, you know, kind of very more psychedelic. I've even got in touch with an old school friend who lives in France, who's a fantastic uh, sitar uh, player. And so um, he was kind enough to um, to session in for us and a guy called Mark Brenner based in Bordeaux in France. And he played uh, the sitar on the Indian influence track. 
and and I think that for us this uh, you know was quite an important step difference to the previous albums. We did it in two or three different studios as well. Um, so we, whereas we'd always worked in one particular studio, we did a bit of a mixture on this time. And I think what it is is these songs weren't all written together like the previous albums. They tended to have evolved, have sat on the back burner maybe for two or three years, and it was really this sort of bringing bringing together of these quite different ideas at times the band was saying is this really going on the album and i'd say yeah yeah no i think it'll work and and at times they weren't sure and we never had those conversations before they generally were kind of yeah we can see this taking shape like the no turning back album or the downtown funk album or the martha high album it all made sense to them whereas this one didn't quite make sense but i think everyone's been really pleased with the the result and i'm certainly very proud of this one it certainly shows the diversity of funk uh, yeah, possibly more than than some of the other recordings yeah. you guys have done, and I, you can tell it's intentional and and completely intentional. Yeah, what I love is that you still have that funk thread that connects everything, but you're yeah. you're showing this is this is more of a global approach to funk. That's it, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Particularly the global um, sort of side of it, and you know, if if and when we do another sort of project, you know, like this, and hopefully we will get sort of started working. You know, now that COVID restrictions are almost gone, not completely, but then we'll start the collaboration process again. That I think this is a thing for us is rather than to say, right, we're going to go back to kind of pure funk. It'll always be there. Rest assured, it'll always be there. It's our sure. backbone. But um, I'm really interested to see what we can develop on top of the funk. So take that funk plus concept on to another level. Yeah. And it's that that motivates me more than anything else. Yeah, I love it. Well, Lee, it has been such a pleasure talking with you. I could probably ask you another hour's worth of questions, and you've been so generous with your time. Uh, it has been okay. a real thrill. So thank you so much for joining me on 40 Minutes of Funk today. It's a uh, pleasure. Where can listeners go to hear and read more about what Speedometer is up to? Well, uh, we're going to try and keep, uh, obviously, our um, website up to date with uh, any sort of news on um, future projects and dates. So that's speedometerfunk.co.uk. And, and I think probably our Facebook page is probably the area where we share most sort of content. And the good thing about that is it's not managed by anyone outside of the band. It's it's done by the band for the band and it's and almost it's fans and friends. Yeah. Uh, and so there's four or five band members um, that really maintain sort of content on that. And they're way much better at keeping it updated than I am on stuff. In well, fact, that's... they tell me, they tell me what's going on in the band sometimes through that, that channel, yeah. particularly, uh, you know, things like when, when songs are used in TV programs and things like that, it's a, it's a good fun thing to kind of share um, and, uh, and that kind of thing. So Facebook page, I would say is probably the, 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 the go-to place for us. Uh, and you guys, you got. Uh, I don't know if a hundred percent of your albums are, but you have a, a healthy repertoire of your music is on Spotify. Yeah, the, in fact, every album, all eight, nine of the albums, I think, are all on on Spotify. Okay. Uh, yeah, so that's that's place, but it's also on, on the other platforms as uh, as well. So yeah, it's it's readily available and and easy to to access. So uh, yeah, hopefully um, as a result of this, maybe one or two extra people might sort of check us out and uh, and I like what we do. I can guarantee you that they will. And I'm just going to say, listeners, when when this is done, just jump over to Spotify or go to Facebook and follow and listen to Speedometer because you're just going to be blown away by all the great music on there. 
Lee, thank you. What else? What did I forget? What did I miss? What key information did you want to share that we didn't get a chance to talk about yet today? Uh, I suppose the only the other thing was just, um, I mean, we we touched on the, the various albums, and, and obviously, you know, we, what we found actually is, is that CDs now, are, I mean, are kind of just filling up in the cupboards. Uh, nobody's buying CDs, but what is nice is to see is vinyl has kind of come full circle and is, is back, and that's what what fans want to want to buy. So we'll be um, over the next sort of year or two is um, where possible. We'll sort of start reissuing uh, some of the albums, but it's probably worth mentioning that Color Red, uh, who are I think Colorado-based um, sort of funk label, uh, run by a guy called Eddie Roberts, who's the um, the guitarist, what well, is the guitarist, in fact, for the, the new Master Sounds, mm-hmm. uh, if you know those guys. And um, he's got a, a um, I think it's a, it's a great model where effectively you subscribe on a monthly basis. Um, and what they do is they commit to reissuing old, when I say old, sort of 20, 25-year-old um, funk albums and soul albums. Um, and so we were lucky to be part of that latest batch of, of re-releases. So they've repressed it exactly the same, same artwork, same uh, sort of pressing. In fact, they've, they've slightly enhanced uh, the mix because we gave them the original masters and they've uh, they've done a slight improvement on it. So uh, in many ways, they've kind of made it slightly better than what it originally was. Um, and that's now released. This was a couple of months ago. So um, that's certainly worth mentioning. And that's easy for um, the American audiences because it's an American-based business. Do you know where they uh, can find rich. where they can find those? I'd start with Color Red um, uh, on the Color Red label um, okay. and, uh, and and go from there. They've got plenty of information on there and you can join like the subscription service, but I'm sure you could probably got loads of other great music and artists on there as well. So I thought it was worth a shout out anyway. Well, great. Lee, thanks again. Everybody check out Speedometer or Speedometer or Speedometer, <laughs> however, whatever it's easiest for you. Uh, it has been a blast having you uh, with me today. Thank you so much, that's, Lee. And uh, best that's of all right. Best of luck and cheers to you and your bandmates, buddy. Great. Thank, thanks, Mike. It was a pleasure talking to you. Thanks right. for your support. Thanks so much for tuning in to this episode of 40 Minutes of Funk. I'm your host, Michael B., and I want to thank Lee Gracie from Speedometer, or Speedometer, for joining me today. Check out their website at www.speedometer-funk.co.uk or find them on all the social media outlets. This podcast is listener-supported by people just like you giving $5 or more per month. If you enjoyed listening, please consider a small monthly donation to help keep this podcast going. For details, please visit www.patreon.com slash 40 Minutes of Funk. And thanks in advance for your support. I also host a weekly funk radio show every Friday night at 9 p.m. Central on kgou.org called Tonic the Funky Groove Show, which you can find on social media at Funky Groove Show, as well as episode playlists on Spotify. You can find this podcast on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at 40 Minutes of Funk or online at 40minutesoffunk.com using the numbers 4 and 0. Please subscribe to this podcast and leave reviews on all the major podcast outlets. It makes a huge difference, and I greatly appreciate it. This show's intro, outro, and advertising music is written and copyrighted by me and performed by an amazing lineup of musicians, including Banana Seats, Saxman, the indomitable Eric Walshop. Oh yeah! Check out the entire list of performers on the 40 Minutes of Funk website. 
Remember, funk music is all about being on the one. Simply put, treat everyone equally. Be kind to others, especially those who are different from you. Be well, friends. Thanks again.